0: Welcome to the Untapped Philanthropy Podcast. We're your hosts, Flux's co-founder Corinne Mitchell, and Neon Ones Tim Sarantonio. We've spent our career learning how to leverage technology and data in the social sector to better connect and serve our collective causes, constituents, and communities. In this podcast series, we profile leaders, public figures, philanthropists, and industry experts to explore the fascinating intersection of funding technology, and policy. We're here to analyze the most formative topics and trends that shape the present and future of philanthropy. Hello, everyone. This is Tim Sarantonio. I want to welcome you to a special episode of Untapped Philanthropy, special insofar that Corinne couldn't make it today. Uh, I hope you enjoy my voice, but luckily for us, it's not just me. We have a fantastic, dynamic, amazing guest for you today, Midei Akirawusi is a just Midei, It's really hard for me to actually summarize who you are, other than one of the most inspiring people that I've interacted with in the sector. But I'd love for people to to hear a little bit about you in your words and and tell you how, how did you get to where you are today. Let's let's hear a bit about you, and then we'll get into a nice conversation. Tim, thank you for
1: your warm introduction, and thank you for the great opportunity to have dialogue and conversation with you today. I appreciate that. I want to kind of send my uh, greetings and love out to those who are listening in today. And thank you also for taking the time to uh, be part of this conversation. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I am a cousin. I'm an uncle. Um, I am a friend to many beautiful and wonderful people in my life and how I got here to be who I am was uh, uh, quite an interesting journey. We are all, I believe, uh, products of our upbringing. And so it might be helpful if I share a little bit of context about my upbringing, uh, which kind of positioned me very firmly in the identity that I have today. Uh, I am the the product of a, a single mother, who had five children, uh, me being her second child, and who worked very, very hard to raise us in the best way that she could. But in her doing so, I immediately came at a very young age to the realization of the inequities of this world. And so, you know, economic challenges, financial challenges, uh, housing challenges... Were all things that i saw my mother uh experience as uh she and i journeyed together and that has left my my experience as a child of uh, growing up with this single mother in a low-income community in south london in in, in england pretty much shaped my personality and so As an adult, I began to ask questions about life, about my life and my position in life. And um, for those who do not know, I grew up in the 70s, 80s and 90s in London, England, during a time where racism was open, it was accepted, it was invited, and it was forced onto Black immigrant communities, of which my family was one of many who experienced that. And so racism and my own personal development have always gone hand in hand because I've always had to react and respond to racial oppression, literally, from the age of about six. So who I am, in short, is a social justice advocate. I like to rebalance inequities. That's what I'm passionate about. And I like to be a voice. And I use the skill of fundraising to create what I think is a balance between those who have the power financially, politically, economically to change the social situation and those who need those who have power to affect that change. And so I've always found myself in the center as a fundraiser, talking with people who have extreme wealth on behalf of people who need some of that wealth and some of that power to be flowed their way.
0: I mean, that's a there is so much to unpack. (laughs) It's so so this is why I'm so excited to talk with you. Um, and and I want to thank you for for kind of sharing that and and giving that space to also reflect on that type of of reasoning and core why of what we do. I, I find that very close to my heart too. Before we start to unpack this from your world and kind of the ways that you've navigated the philanthropy space, as especially maybe we can go back to the time with your your mother growing up and things like that, or or however you've reflected on this in career, is there a moment that stands out to you as, as just kind of a crystallization of the core goodness? of when we talk about philanthropy, generosity, is there a moment that seems almost magical in your memory that sticks with you even today?
1: Yeah, the, the, thank you for asking that question because there are two crystallized moments for me. <laughs> Love it. Uh, uh, the age of six, when my mother and I were living in my aunt's attic, like literally we were in, living in my aunt's roof uh, because we were homeless at the time. And so my aunt created this space for my mother and I to live. And I remember from the age of six, just kind of thinking, this is a really cool space. But I knew also that it was not a normal space. It wasn't a space that many kids my age occupied, physically speaking, and Mm -hmm. even psychologically speaking, Mm -hmm. to live in an attic. right? So, So I knew there was an extreme at that point. Fast forward four years later. So, at the age of ten, my mother actually lands her own property. And uh, for those who are in the UK, we, we we essentially were given a rental property from the council. We would call it the council. I think if you were in New York, you might call it the project. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we dwelled in that space, but it was we felt as though it was ours, and it was three bedrooms now, not. An attic that my mother and I had to share. And the paradigm shift for me (laughs) was how my mother then opened up a three bedroom home to others to dwell, just as my aunt opened up her attic Mm. for us to dwell. And I thought about that as one of the most powerful continuums in my life. My mother being a beneficiary of my aunt. And then my mother being a benefactor to others who are also homeless.
0: That I mean, that's such a powerful, and I definitely want to hear about the other one too, but just to reflect on how, as a mindset, to say immediately, how can I help others? Yeah. Instead of, this is mine. That's right. Like, is so culturally impactful at an early age. So so thank you for sharing that. What's the other one? The other one is really quite, it's quite interesting because
1: apart from the three bedrooms, we didn't have much else. We did have a car. We didn't have kind of luxury items. The one thing I remember about growing up was that I was never hungry, never went without food. And, and you know, I reflect on that even till today. I'm almost 53 years old. I reflect on the fact that I have never experienced hunger. And though I have experienced kind of like, you know, financial and economic need, Mm -hmm. it has never been to the extreme of not having food in the fridge. So Mm -hmm. for me... Not having the clothes that I would want, not having a bike, not having computer games and consoles, not having, you know, all those things that 10-year-old kids kind of uh, hanker and crave after, materially speaking, was obviously a kind of, you know, left me with a bit of a sense of loss, but I knew why. It was because we couldn't afford those things. But even though we couldn't afford those things, I could still eat. You know, there, there, there's, there's something for me quite magical about that, quite fascinating that here is my mother renting out or giving out for free, actually, rooms in her home when she doesn't have much herself, but still keeping things going at the same time.
0: I think that's so beautiful. And I know you and I, in other previous conversations, not recorded for a podcast, have talked about the power of food in Ooh. of itself. Maybe that's a different podcast episode, but I think that that it's really interesting to tie back kind of those core safety yeah. elements. That was it. I, I think you hit the nail on
1: the head, uh, Tim. I always felt safe, yeah, at home, even though home was for me a place
0: where financially we weren't in good shape. So let's let's start to to draw that into the current work that you're doing. And maybe, maybe we could kind of extend that out in terms of that, that the safety that people can feel. And you've been at the forefront of some really exciting initiatives. You actually, at the time of this recording have just wrapped going into your third year, if, if I'm correct, around the Giving Black Conference. Correct. Yeah.
1: Um, Great. We're, okay. we're, we're in our third year of the Giving Black Conference and uh, perhaps there are a few things that we can say about that. But let me describe what the Giving Black Conference is.
0: Yeah, let's Let's start with there because it's, it's just like we'll use that as an entry point, but maybe we could use that as a broader conversation about Black philanthropy as a whole. But I think like this is such a unique event in our sector. If you could tell people about that. For sure. Uh, the Giving Black
1: Conference is a Community, It is a place of convergence for all people who want to know, contribute, who are already involved and engaged in any form of philanthropy in the global black community. So we're talking about folks in Canada, folks in the US, USA, in Europe, Caribbean and the African continent as well, and anywhere else that we may see Africa's black diaspora. It's a place of convergence where we can come together to celebrate Black Philanthropy Month, but also talk about the issues that affect our giving. And we know that as uh, Black people and people of African heritage, that we have a rich history and a rich culture of philanthropy. But we also know that in the global north, our role as philanthropists is somewhat downplayed, ignored, I would say um, kind of trivialized in terms of the power of what we as Black people can do. And so, you know, I think about, you know, let's put it in this order. Who were the people who fought against the transatlantic slave trade and brought their resources, created the Underground Railroad so that Black people may be liberated? It was Black people. Who were the people who fought for and who fought against the colonization of the African continent so that black people in our own continent could be free? It was black people. Who are the people today fighting for racial equity so that we can all be seen as human beings, equal and worthy of same treatment? It's black people. So when we start to talk about African philanthropy, money is just like, you know, it's like a microcosm compared to the breadth of importance and power that overall Black philanthropy has. Black philanthropy is always culturally defining. It creates an epoch. And so the... Sad nature of this is that as fundraisers in the mainstream, we are perpetually fascinated with who has financial wealth. (laughs) And so financial wealth is doing us the favor, (laughs) you know, if if we really consider it. The pursuit of financial wealth is the singular most destructive force in the world today. And yet as fundraisers, we laud it. We, we we lust after it. And so black, what black philanthropy does is that it reminds us of the true essence of love of man, woman, child. Love for each other. Mm-hmm. And in an African context, we might call that Ubuntu mm-hmm. if you were from South Africa or in that region. If you are from West Africa, you might call it sankofa, which is looking back. So in other words, I am progressing and that is good. But I also have a responsibility to look back at those who are behind me and make sure I can bring them in parallel. And of course, we all know the meaning of Ubuntu is I am because we are. We are codependent on each other. And that is the essence of the Giving Black Conference, to center conversation and community
0: around those very issues. I kind of want to frame all of that, by the way. That was beautiful. What it makes me think of, in particular, is how one of the biggest grifts, if you will, that I think has been perpetuated upon the sector is indeed what you're saying, is that the money, the power, have all been intertwined around the wrong focus. And where, especially coming out of the United States, because you're in Canada now, but there's still definite cultural elements in the the kind of the hegemonic culture of like, you know, kind of the white supremacy that can drive a lot of unnecessary damage in our world. And what I've reflected upon is how there's kind of community approaches to solving a problem or individualistic approaches. Oh, I can do this versus we can do this. And I feel that the money inherently, and we've learned this through through people like Edgar Vell and money's existed before capitalism. Correct. Yeah. It was before capitalism, <laughs> mm-hmm. so that's the biggest thing that that I think has been grifted upon us is that the money and the value have been intertwined. Where it's like, oh, the more money there is, the more valuable it is, and it's like yeah. that's not true, per mm-hmm. se. And we need to rethink this. But I think that that there is an othering that I know you have articulated when it comes to black philanthropy and regular philanthropy. And that's very dangerous to do to say, well, okay, well, that's the, that's the best practice to do it this way, but oh, how interesting Mm. that the black community approaches it this way, but there's still kind of like a less than about it. And that that's extraordinarily dangerous. I agree with you, Tim, and I want to lean into the essence of, of,
1: of what you are saying because I think you've captured such a an importantly phenomenal point that, that I would love um, listeners to really try to embrace. Uh, but I will talk generally uh, a little bit before getting into some of the detail here. Okay, black thought is central to all situations of social change, as far as I'm concerned. And what do I mean by that? I mean that if you wish to know how to solve a problem uh, or create an opportunity, you would do well to speak with individuals and groups of Black people. Because the way we think and what we generate from our thoughts typically are never individualized, always collectivized, almost by default and by proxy. When I put on the Giving Black conference, we charge no fee for that conference. It's a gift to the community. And it isn't because we don't know how to financially leverage a conference, right? I'm a fundraiser, I've been so for almost 30 years now. I know how to financially leverage things. But the essence is that I'm thinking in terms of community and I want global community to be part of this. So it requires an understanding of what enhances the coming together of people who are in several different countries around the world Mm -hmm. and what might be a barrier to their convergence. So if we take out the money then we don't need to worry about issues of
0: access, do we? I want to bring up something that that reminded me about. There was a gentleman, he had put on a Latino conference in California and, and had actually written about it and posted, I think, on the, uh, it was some sort of Facebook or LinkedIn group about the conference. It was an article that says, look, we're going to create this accessible conference for Latino fundraisers. And they're not going to like, they're going to charge like very, very little money. And a technology person commented on it and said, well, if you're not charging money, then how good it could, it could, could it be? Basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and that was emblematic of the problem That's that the we problem. have. Oh, yeah. and, and, and there is pushback because it's like, no, it's it's free because I'm a good fundraiser yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and yeah. we are making it accessible for people. So that's very, very important, because yeah. these are the types of people who make those comments that actually have their pulse supposedly on the power level, the, the yeah. power structure. There you go. Right. And they're dictating what is valuable and what is not at large. Yeah. And we have to change the conversation. So thank you for calling that out explicitly. Yeah, thank you. I mean, you know, the, the assumption
1: that something has value only if it can be monetized. Mm-hmm. I find to be perverse. Yes. Right? Let, let, let's think about the most important things in our lives. I, I'm going to put my children and, uh, my wife, uh, as, as, and, 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 my, and my, my mother and my family. Let's, let's, let's say that the best relationships, the most effective love, the best, best meals time together that we have had. Just imagine if I kind of say, well, folks, uh, before we gather together, I'll need you each to pay me a $100 for the experience. (laughs) It, It kind of deflates the whole thing, right? And so, you know, there is a place for money, don't get me wrong, but not everything needs to be monetized. And And so this is what we're talking about with Black philanthropy. Typically, when you are in any country in the global north, because of systemic systemic oppression towards Black people, you will find us in communities that are less served by transport, health, education, employment, all of those important issues that are linked to our survival. And so fundraisers will naturally look at our communities and say, well, there is no money there. Therefore, there can be nothing dynamic, nothing creative, nothing useful. No thought can come from that because it is not financially strong. That's perverse. And that's my point about the power of black thought, that actually it's just different ways of thinking and viewing our world. And and it is not dominated by, in my experience at least, of African and Black philanthropy, how much money we have. It's dominated by how much love we can share, how we build community, how we take care of each other, how we laugh, how we sing, how we dance, how we build culture, how we bond. I could go on, right? Those are the valuable things in life. And then money is
0: layered on top of that as an enabler of some of those things. I kind of want to shift gears slightly to get into kind of a flow that if, if you'll indulge me to go through, which is almost like go through the valley of death toward mm-hmm. the promised land. And what I mean by that is that one of the reasons that I was excited, but also thought it was in, imperative to have you on the podcast is that there's a situation that you've been at the the kind of the center of in many ways at the AFP Toronto chapter. And I want to talk a bit about that, give you some time to talk about that. But then that doesn't define you. (laughs) No. And if you look at social media, it's very easy for people to go, oh, that's the only thing that that guy's going to talk about. And that's (laughs) wrong. And so I want to make sure that we end on what is the future going to look like? by embracing the mindset that you're talking about, because I'm in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly. my world, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But we have to talk about what are the stakes here? That's why I want to talk about AFP Toronto. What are the stakes by not addressing this? So this is an audience that I'm going to be up front, probably is not acclimated at all to the situation. So in a way, like, What's the too long didn't read of of what you've been going through for, unfortunately, kind of a long time now? Goodness, Um, let me start at (laughs) let me start at the end because this is a big one, Tim.
1: This is a big one. Let me start at the end. We're getting into it. We're getting into it. it. Oh, listen, you know, nothing's off the table as I like to say. (laughs) This is this is what untapped potential. So it was a slow build-up to this. (laughs) 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 Okay, so so I'm going to start at the end um, because this I think would be a great uh, resource for listeners. to really get caught up on this. And we'll add
0: things to the show notes for context for people. Really? Thank you.
1: So I want to encourage all listeners to please download um, uh, Us and Them, a lecture delivered by Nika Allen Mm -hmm. at the University of British Columbia. That is important reading for this context. And then I want to invite listeners to please visit the Giving Black website. To listen to episodes six of the Giving Black podcast, where we lay out verbally mm-hmm. what that experience with AFP GTC was in 2019. So, so that's that's the end, which will now enable me to directly answer your question, but also just summarize what happened exactly. in an essence. Uh, three black board members, including myself and two sisters, were invited to join the board uh, of AFP. Um, it, uh, and in 2019, all three of us resigned uh, on the same day at the same time. The reason for our resignation was essentially as a result of bullying of one of the, um, um, uh, of, of Allen. Uh, That she had experienced around the board table, and this kind of collective sense that our contributions around the board table had been tokenized. So we were wanted for our bodies, right? We were wanted for our kind of, you know, uh, uh, our our presence, Mm. but we were not wanted for our minds. This was very much a place where black thought that I will go back to was ultimately rejected. Um the AFP movement in general. Ignored this seismic events of three black fundraisers in the largest chapter of the AFP in the world resigning. Everybody buried their heads in the sand. And this year, when Necker Allen published her essay, um, her address, shall I say, to the University of British Columbia, she then approached me to kind of say, well, you know, here's the lecture. What might we do to promote awareness? And I immediately said, we need to have a conversation on the Giving Black podcast. Mm -hmm. And the context of that was that other organizations had rejected the opportunity to take up this story. So I've got to put that in there, that Mm -hmm. some of our leading organizations that claim to represent the nonprofit sector in general did not want to promote the lecture. Mm. or have a conversation about it they they too wanted to bury it so we had this podcast discussion we two podcast discussions we shared the podcast and it went viral and what people began to see was this major issue of inequity throughout the afp movement but especially at afp toronto we then started to draw up You know, when there was a petition, the petition, I think, attracted almost 2,000 signatories Mm -hmm. for AFP Toronto to make amends for the damage that they had created, for the hurt that they had caused us in 2019, which essentially they were incapable of at the board level and at the leadership level of AFP Toronto, which then led to their resignation. So they kind of threw their hands up in the air. They were like, you know, board members were like, oh, we yeah. don't know what to do with this. We're all, we're all like, you know, we're going home and take we're taking our ball with us. <laughs> you know, we don't want to play this game anymore. Yeah, And they collectively resigned, leaving AFP Toronto in a very precarious situation indeed, at which point I was then invited to become the interim chair of the association or the association itself, AFP Toronto, would be scrapped, essentially discontinued, dismantled, and no longer exist. Big big deal for the largest chapter. Big deal for the largest chapter. And so (laughs) I I often think in my life that, you know, things uh, often need balance. And so I'm happy to be a critic. But the question is, could I also be a builder Mm. or a rebuilder in this situation? And so I think it isn't good enough at times just to be able to critique an issue. We can all critique an issue. The real question is, what are we going to do about it? And so for me, I was confronted with that dilemma of, uh, okay, so if I am at the kind of epicenter, as it were, mm-hmm. of uh, events uh, concerning this association, could I also be at the epicenter of Kind of put in this association back on track, and uh, and it is an ob- obligation and a duty which I proudly serve now. How do you feel? Uh, I feel somewhat conflicted. Actually, I, I I wrote about it saying, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's rare for somebody to step back into an organization that has oppressed them and caused them so much hurt and pain. And you know, for me, Tim, the the hurt and pain came from the fact that these board members. I had considered them to be my friends. Mm-hmm. They were not strangers to me. There were people, there were fellow peers in fundraising that I had known some for more than a decade. And so I, I felt disappointed by the fact that they could not support me and my two sisters who had resigned. Uh, that's where the pain really came from. But, but also there was pain in seeing the oppression uh, certainly, Necker Allen was being singled out to yes. receive, and then I secondarily, as well
0: as Matoli. And for, for also, we should include in the show notes, the amazing book, Collecting Courage.
1: And this the amazing book. book, Collecting Courage, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Which, Where, is,
0: which is actually how I got introduced to, to all of you folks mm-hmm. originally when that mm-hmm. book came out. And, and I'm going to be blunt. I, I feel like I didn't do enough for, for all of you on a personal level and i think that's the the hard thing is it's just so like like especially white allies it's like what do i do <laughs> yeah. Yeah. like where where am i best able to to hold space when invited to give space right that's why I, I i for me it was important to have you on the show because i was like well i need to do something yeah and mm-hmm that's that's not enough in many ways but where where do you think the healing is starting to show as well and and then also where can we build a world where the point of view that you hold becomes the dominant point of view let's let's maybe start to shift toward the healing a bit what are you what are you doing there and what can people do to help thank you um Tim, can I go back a little
1: bit, please, just to talk about your your point around you feeling that you did not do. um, I don't want to make it about me, man. No, 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 (laughs) no, no. no. Well, well, actually, you know, it's about you, but it's also about others as well.
0: Yeah, right. Uh, I I I know it's a feeling others have that maybe let's exactly. And I want to
1: kind of. um, It's important, I think, that listeners are able to really understand or at least to hear me out on this issue right and, and this is what i'm seeking just an, an opportunity to mm-hmm. hear me out with some thoughts on this issue more black thought by the way you yeah. <laughs> at every insertion <laughs> I, I might mention <laughs> please here's, absolutely here's the here's the thing think about racism and its point and purpose one of its points is to silence those Mm -hmm. who may be inclined to challenge it, right? Mm -hmm. Like something has happened. What's the best thing to do? Uh, Listen, let's just pretend it didn't happen and keep moving. That's the effect that racism has on us. Mm -hmm. Erasure. Erasure, or what I call in collecting courage, inertia. Mm. a not knowing what to do. When we open up the fridge and there's no food in it, what are we going to do? We're going to go to the shop, shopping mall or wherever and get some groceries, right? Mm -hmm. When the gauge on our car is in the red zone, what are we going to do? We're going to stop by a filling station and pump it up, right? There's no inertia in those issues. But when it comes to racism, mass inertia is an intentional outcome of racism that everybody who is confronted by it should not know what to do about it and i just want us to be really clear that that's the space we're in right Mm -hmm. our society has encouraged us to ignore and even now in the usa contextual to your politics Politicians are saying not only do we ignore, but we erase, to your point, any commentary about the black experience or about black thought. That's the purpose of racism. And so we all need to know that, Tim, that you are not alone in thinking that, oh, I could have done more, but at the time I did. I may not have known what. To... That's just the impact of racism on Tim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you get what I mean? I do. Or on anybody else. And so I just want folks to be clear that um, it, what we need to do is to really begin to think about what are some of those effective measures that will enable us to challenge racism when and where it happens, just as we respond to an empty fuel gauge in our vehicles when that happens. So that being said, what does healing look like? For me, healing looks like reconciliation. Um, <laughs> I'll put it this way. You know, my wife and I, uh, I love her dearly. We've been married uh, almost 30 years. Uh, and uh, we still argue, believe it or not. But when we argue, somebody has to apologize to the other person. And then we have to remind ourselves that we love each other. And then we take actions to prevent such an argument happening again. Mm-hmm. That, for me, is the ultimate definition of reconciliation an acknowledgement that wrong has been done mm-hmm. and the effort to right that wrong and a commitment to walk a different path going forward.
0: That's, that actually reminds me of right before I got married, I was at a movie showing of some terrible movie that the actor Nick Offerman had put. <laughs> i don't even remember the movie i watched it. it was unforgettable but he was there and i loved him from parks and recreation right mm-hmm. ron swanson himself was there and so i actually raised my hand i said i'm about to get married my wife's in the audience right here do you have any advice for us and it was pretty much that it was be able to know when you're an asshole Yeah, was what he said. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I I think and I think that goes back to what we were just talking about. The other thing that inertia, or in inertia does, is freezes you into perfectionism. Mm -hmm. If I do it this way, and I screw up, I'll get fired. Yeah, that's, that's what is the, also the underlying thing for a lot of this that driving people's fear is that economic insecurity of like, I screwed up. And what I am starting to see from a healing standpoint is there's more individuals and organizations and leaders who understand it's okay to fail and it's okay to fail, especially when it comes to equity and justice. Yeah, As long as we're heading toward the right direction. So, of course, let me hand it back to you. But I wanted to share at least that funny story from Ron Swanson. Uh, beautiful, beautiful uh, analogy and funny story indeed. And um,
1: I also, uh, you, you, you have some nuggets here, Tim, that I've just uh, really kind of, uh, 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 I really want to kind of also lean in and try mm-hmm. and unpick. And and so we have two worlds as I see it. We have the uh, the world of equity and fairness. And then we have the world of money-making. Okay, if we tilt the balance in decision-making, always towards money-making, we drift further and further away from decisions about equity. And so the president who says, like, oh, for instance, I've just seen a racist act, but if I speak up, I may get fired. That's a money decision right there. That's not Mm -hmm. an equity decision, Mm -hmm. right? I just want us all to be clear about that. But the person who says in the same situation, I see an inequity here and I am going to speak up irrespective of what it may cost me, that person is an equity champion. I want to say something that is obvious now about equity. We cannot claim to pursue equity without being willing to lose something that we have. It is impossible to achieve equity without giving up what we have. And I'm talking about that on an individual level as well as on a collective level, as well as on a country level, as well as on a global level. Equity survives when other people give up the power and the resources that they have and
0: channel that into the hands of other people who do not have. I I honestly... Can't think of a better like summation <laughs> of the conversation too. Um, yeah. We're gonna because I I I could talk to you all day and we even <laughs> talked likewise. about that, but, but <laughs> we have to make sure that our friends Sean and Nate are <laughs> able to do their job so uh, big up a- Sean and Nate for being so patient with us <laughs> so one one final thing that I'll ask you and then I have some rapid fire questions for you yeah is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to talk about today
1: i uh, want to elaborate on the importance of uh, black thought not as an object and not as a nice thing to do, not as something that sits on the side of our desks, uh, not as something that kind of sounds nice because it comes from me or any other black person, but as something that is central to the pursuit of social change in our communities and in our society. And my personal experience, Tim, has been that when I express myself as a Black man, as a Black professional fundraiser, as a Black social change advocate, I've always felt that my viewpoints sit peripherally to what white men may think or what white women may think, as though my thoughts are somewhat junior or Got kind of like, you know, not quite as advanced
2: mm-hmm.
1: as those of white people. That's racism.
2: Mm.
1: So when I keep talking about black thought, it is to say that it deserves its rightful place in the center of all of human thinking. It is not a getaway subject our experiences are not irrelevant to the rest of the world, they matter. And unless we are able to embrace the expressions of thought leaders, young, old, middle-aged, man, woman, doesn't really matter unless we're able to embrace and be open in our minds to those expressions it's almost as though we have one eye closed on the subject of social change instead of walking into situations of social change with both eyes open. And so I want to invite our listeners to seek out Black thoughts on some of the issues that you are involved and engaged in. What do Black people think? What have Black people written about a particular subject? because we deserve our rightful place
0: as thinkers in conversations that require deep thought. When I think of the philosophers in many ways that we have in our sector, which they are, in my opinion, far and few between, you are one of them, I will say. So I'm very grateful for for the time that you've given us. However, I am going to put you through one final exercise, Mede Uh (laughs) uh-oh i got a few rapid fire questions we do love this this as as a recurring segment this is our stupid animal tricks i suppose oh my gosh feet go easy man go easy oh it's so easy this is fun this is fun and so this is this is just you give off the cuff don't think about it i Uh, want your black thoughts all but right, don't it, have it to think deeply, they okay? come.
1: come. All right, go for it. Yeah,
0: now we're going to start something. We're going to start fun. <laughs> we're going to start fun. If you can listen to only one song for the rest of your life, what song would that be, and why? Marvin Gaye. Let's get it on. Why? <laughs> um, I love or, Marvin Or does Gaye. it? Or does it say it like on its own? Uh, um.
1: Well, you know, there's the obvious uh, reference uh, to the song uh, of course but, but then there's also the deeper kind of political mm-hmm. call to action as well uh, sometimes when i listen to it
0: i mean that whole lp
1: is oh, it, is oh, something that goodness. i
0: i love i play all of it. his lps every mm-hmm. last one of them yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> but that that but that song is is definitely there's a depth there so i love oh, that goodness yeah so okay I'll I'll extend it out because it's us. What about a dish, a food dish? If if you can have like your favorite dish and you know you're not going to get sick of it every time you have it, what is that?
1: Nigerian jollof rice with um, beef stew mm-hmm. and some plantains, washed down with some palm wine and uh, some Nigerian beer. I'll go with a uh, star lager. For my beer.
0: That's my ideal meal. I I I love that. If they start making a non-alcoholic version of Star Lager, then I'm all about it. But I'll I'll join you with something else. That sounds great. Okay, so if you could have a magic wand and change one thing about the nonprofit sector, what would it be?
1: That more money comes into the sector. To pursue the important work that we need so that we can have the important people doing that work and creating the important change that
0: needs to occur. So, on that note, and the final question of our time together today what do you hope your legacy is to future generations?
1: Gosh, beautiful question. Um, Just that I hope I've said a good example of what it means to pursue your values, to take risks, to speak when uh, your voice is needed, to love and to care for those who are in this community, and to challenge others who I feel um, uh, ought to do better, ought to do more. I think that's it.
0: I think that's it. Midday, this is this is one for the books. Folks, check the show notes on this one. You can learn a lot. <laughs> We're going to make sure that this is chock full of, of follow-up information. We're going to heavily uh, encourage you to do that. Mide, any final words for us before we sign off today? I want to wish everybody... Well, first of all, I want to thank you, Tim. I want to thank uh,
1: the production team uh, on this phenomenal conversation by far <laughs> it's probably the conversation of the month for me oh, <laughs> so brilliant. thank you it's beautiful i love it um and uh I, I i just wish everybody success in pursuing their change journey on a personal level on a collective level and on a cause level as well um and and i'm always happy to be an ally and uh, help uh, to anybody who needs uh, support in changing our world for the better.
0: Well, thank you for joining us. Folks, check the show notes and we'll see you next episode. Thanks again for listening to Untapped Philanthropy today. You can listen and download our episodes at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and of course, directly from our website at flux.io. That's f l u x dot